Good morning. I'm Cole, and today we'll be reading from Matthew 25, 14 through 30, which that is on page 830 in the Pew Bible you have in front of you. Again, Matthew 25, 14 through 30 on page 830. For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of the house of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, and he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful, faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I, have, where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to, to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Hey, uh, just want to seek some clarity real fast. Detailing the cars is different than washing the cars. Uh, Matt Ford, are we, are we doing chicken nuggets and the whole thing and the cracks and all that? I think we're outside. I got super excited. I was like, this will be amazing. But I don't want to like classic bait and switch if you're going, I was told you would get all my chicken nuggets out of my car. I think it's external washing. We will clarify that for you. I didn't want an angry, uh, I don't know, that'd be a sweet deal. That'd be an amazing fundraiser. Uh, I just, I was excited, and then I was nervous, and then I didn't know if you felt those things as well, so I wanted to bring you, bring you into that. Uh, hey, what if I prayed, and that would be helpful uh, to get us out of this moment. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for uh, your word to us. Um, I want to ask that what we've been singing about, what we've already confessed to be true, um, wouldn't feel like a warm-up to this passage. It would feel like uh, the same thing, your faithfulness, uh, your goodness, that you cleanse us from sin. Um, that you're with us, that, that when we turn to you, you heal us, that gaze upon you changes us. I pray those realities would um, frame this passage for us. It would minister to our hearts. It would transform us. It would actually literally in this moment change us. So, so would you do that work by your word, with the truth we've already sung, with, with how we'll celebrate communion in a moment. Um, we ask God for, for your help. Um, so speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen.
Amen. Hey, I want to start by inviting you to think with me just about the strangeness of money. Like, not just the concept of, like, wealth, but, like, actual physical money. So it's been a long time since I've seen, like, the School of House, School, school House Rock, School Rock House, School House Rock episode. Dang. All right, let me start over. Uh, remember, like, there's things about money that you learned as a kid from School House Rock. That's what it was. Okay. All right. Hey, so think about for a second, like you saw these cavemen, right? They're using shells to represent certain things. And you used to trade real commodities, like I will give you this skin and you will give me food. And somehow it worked to I will give you now something that symbolizes wealth, like a seashell or a jewel or a gold or a big rock or something. And that now represents a kind of wealth. And so I give you a symbol of something and then you give me a commodity in exchange. And it's gone for a long time now. We have cryptocurrency and things that are now in ones and zeros online. The whole thing is just kind of bizarre. In fact, actually, yesterday at our parent meeting, someone was trying to pay for the class in cash, and it like took me off guard. I was like, I haven't, I haven't touched money probably like in three weeks. I don't even know what to do with like a physical bill, right? So you go, all right, this thing, paper, some fibers, there's a, a water seal in it. It's not very much, actually. You can't see it, but it's just, it's just a five. But, but I would give this to somebody, and they would give me food or uh, they would wash my car, or maybe they'll detail it, depending on where we are as a thing. I'm not sure exactly. but um, So I exchange this piece of paper, and then I get something. And the thing I get probably has more intrinsic value than kind of what is this. It's more than just the fibers of this, but it represents something. It's symbolic, right? And then you think about even like a check, which is weirder. I remember the first time my kids like tried to get a check and like write a check, and they're like, I don't even know what what to do with this? Like, where do I put my name? And why am I putting my name on this? And can't you just transfer money into my account? And everything is just weird now, even digitally, which, by the way, is a plug for why we take up a collection or an offering every Sunday. I think there's something still physical that's good in our worship to, to say with our bodies, hey, we're, we're saying out loud, God, we need you and what you have provided for us uh, is something that is not just like a reality that we have on Sundays. It's an everyday reality. So we're, we're fighting as a community to not just go back to the dark ages, but to think about wealth and money well. Okay, with that idea in your mind that, that the bill or the dollar or the jewel or the talent is symbolic and it represents some other value. I want you to have that in your mind as we engage this text because this passage is about money in as much as it's a, a symbol of the kingdom of God. If you've been with us, we've been marching through the Gospel of Matthew. We've come now to the end of his teachings to his disciples he will be betrayed in just a few days. He'll actually go to the cross. He'll die for our sins. He'll be raised and he'll give some final teachings and then he'll ascend back to heaven. So that's about uh, what's about to happen. And in these moments, he's imparting to his disciples what it means for them to really to wait for him. And he's going to go away and what's going to happen and, and when will the destruction of the temple take place and when will the end of the world take place and what should we do in the meantime and how would we know what the signs of these things would be. That's where we've been in Matthew. And there's a series of five parables. This is the fourth one that Jesus gives to explain how we should wait. So, so even the money in this passage is symbolic about something much deeper and spiritual. So a physical dollar is symbolic of something deeper, but, but this is even more so. This is a symbol or something about our hearts or, or where we understand the, the value of the kingdom, how we understand ourselves, how we understand God. What's going on in this text is, is too small if you just talk about money. And I feel really conflicted because I think we need to talk more about money. I think with something that kind of grips your soul and it has, 
has sway over your heart. But the reason it does is because it represents so much more. It's not just that you care about X's and O's and zeros and ones and physical dollars or checks or interest rates. It's not where your heart is. It's what it promises you. So in that sense, Jesus is brilliant to talk about money as a metaphor to explain how we wait. What do we do in the meantime as we cry out for Christ's return? And he said, we're going to suffer. He said, there's going to be persecution. He said, there'll be all kinds of wars and famines and people will turn away. We'll, we'll be persecuted, he says. So what do you do in the middle of that? How do you wait? And so he's telling these five stories or five metaphors. They begin in the middle of chapter 24. But, but he turns to say, the point of what I'm saying here in verse 42 of chapter 24 in Matthew is, therefore, stay awake. That's the frame. This parable is about staying awake. And last week we looked at a lot of parables that were about waiting. You could say this one is about working. That we actually stay awake in an active way. It's not a, a passive thing where we just sit and by time we actually actively engage in the realities of the kingdom. And even the parables that we've seen so far are telling us things about the kingdom. Like he's going to come quick was the first parable. He's going to come like a thief in the night. And there's nothing duplicitous about Jesus. He's saying it's going to come suddenly. And he says, and if you're not waiting rightly, you're going to think that you're the master. In the absence of the master, you're going to actually now brutalize other people. And you'll, you'll turn to other servants and you'll take from them. And so, so we looked in verses 48 to, to about 51 of chapter 24. Where this servant who forgot that he was a servant put himself in the space of the master, begins to actually take advantage of fellow servants and then actually move towards all kinds of comforts that were sinful and destructive. And so if we, if we don't wait rightly, we said it leads us into sin, which is a call to repentance. And then we did this parable of these ten bridesmaids or these ten virgins who are waiting for the groom to come and talked about their preparedness like them just anticipating that he's actually coming knowing him relationally knowing he promised to come and making provision for his coming those are things we've looked at so far about waiting and now we come into this text and it's about investing the realities of the kingdom for the king's sake in the world around us but that's the point the point of this is how do we wait? How do we stay awake? What should we be about? We should be about investing the values of the kingdom from the king in the world around us. I want to walk through the text and just kind of show you that, but I want you to have that big idea because, again, it's about money in as much as money is symbolic about where your heart is. Jesus will say, hey, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust can destroy, where it could lose its value, where the interest rate could drop, where you could have all your stock in one company and then they, they do an ad campaign and it drops 20% in a moment and that one campaign now is tied to your retirement. Like money is just weird. The way it all works is weird. He says, don't, don't put your hope in that. Don't put your hope in this world. Rather set yourself in spaces where your desire and your treasure and your longing and your focus it's on the kingdom of God where it can't spoil or fade. And so this morning what we get a chance to do is they like, how do we, how do, we do that? What, what does that look like? What does it look like to actively wait for the return of the king as we invest his kingdom commodities would be a way to say it. 
Because it's actually his property. Did you see that in verse 14? Verse 14 is a very confrontational verse in chapter 25. There's so many things in there that are offensive to you if you just understood what it's actually saying. But, but there's this idea here that everything we have actually comes from the king. It's his property that he's given to people. So you're not an owner. You're simply a steward. You're simply investing. And so the idea here is that you actively wait for the return of the king by investing his commodities in the world around us. So, so let me just kind of retell the story for a moment. You, you saw it. It's pretty simple. It's actually provocative as it gets to the end. And if you're not familiar with the Bible, it might have caught you off guard as it takes a sharp turn towards the end of the story where this one guy who seemed to maybe be responsible or at least conservative, right? All he did was bury this talent so he could give exactly what he was given back to the king. It doesn't seem too bad. And then this king is actually livid about that. And we talked before about these parables. They're not just neat illustrations. They're provocative stories that have a punchline to help us engage in spiritual realities. And so what this man does as he buries it says everything about how he sees the king. Did you catch it? He says, hey, I knew that you were a harsh man. I knew that you were unjust. I knew that you take what you didn't, doesn't belong to you, that you go get things that you didn't actually work for. So I was afraid. I buried this thing. Now have what's yours. That's the punchline of this text, right? So there's a way to misuse these kingdom commodities, to kind of sit on them, and everything about how you see the king determines what you do with what he's given you, right? That, that is the focal point. That's the provocative edge that you're meant to go, well, how do I see the king? And, and, and how do I see the king as reflected in how I'm partnering with him in advancing his kingdom in the world? How, how do I see the king for one? How do I see myself for two? And how do I understand what I have, my stuff? How do I see the king? How do I see myself? And how do I see myself would be, would be an outline to kind of walk through this text. Because the king dishes out proportions to his servants and there's no sense in the text that one is smarter or better or more faithful. He just gives diversely to people. And then, and then he goes away on a journey. Jesus is telling, what do you do in the meantime? What do you do as you're waiting? Right? That's the whole point. And as they uh, take his treasures, his possessions, his commodities, his talents, and these would be large sums of money. It's weird to go back and try to equate ancient numbers, but, but most scholars would say this is somewhere between like, 15 and 20 years wages. This is not a, a small thing. Just one talent is that much. So, so five talents, you just do the math. No, that's a, that's a, a lot of wealth, a lot of investment, a lot of entrusting. And so two of them take what they were given, and it says immediately they go and they put it to work. They, they go and invest in it. They begin to trade. They begin to work. They begin to invest these commodities of their master in the community, and it grows. It bears more. And so they started with five, and now they have five more. They started with two and they have two more. It's a, an image for us of investing, of actively waiting, of, of working while we're longing for the king to return. And then the provocative turn again is this one who was just given one talent. And we're not supposed to say, there, oh, it doesn't matter. He was just given one. It's too small to do something with. Remember, this is like 15 to 20 years away. This is a significant amount of money. And, and to protect it, he just buried it. But we see it wasn't just a strategy to honor the master it was rooted in a belief about the master that he was evil that he was withholding that he was somehow unjust and the point Jesus wants to make is how you see me will determine how you invest what I've given you in the world 
How you see the king will determine how you invest in his kingdom. How you see the king will determine what you do with the kingdom commodities that he entrusts to you. If you bury them, hide them, feel entitled to them. It's not just how you see money. It's how you see the one who this money is representing. Remember, it's all kind of symbolic. And then there's, of course, judgment that comes. Right? All these parables have this kind of biting edge of judgment. To, it's not to scare us, but to sober us. To say, this is significant. This is not a story you can take or leave. You only have two choices. You either are going to invest in it or you're going to sit on it. One of those has a praise from the king. One of those has deep rebuke from the king. So you have these two options. In that space, we're seeing ourselves now in the middle of the story. And we're supposed to ask, how do we see the king? He says in verse 14, For it will be like a man going on a journey. That's the beginning of the story. This is all about Jesus going away back to heaven while he's waiting for the kingdom to advance through life as disciples. This is what it will be like. The king goes away on a journey. So, so there's an acknowledgement that he's king. Uh, the rest of the parables call him like the master. They, they call him king. It's very clearly he is the king. All five of these are weaving together. What Jesus is doing is layering stories. Maybe you've done this with your kids or you use word pictures. I don't know where I've picked it up, but I kind of think in terms of like images and metaphors, which sometimes is fun and sometimes is super challenging to track because I'll switch metaphors real fast. So I was in a meeting with Adam this week and we were talking about small groups. That was the conversation. At one point we're talking about the length of barrels of guns from like pistols to rifles, which I don't really own either one of those. But like we're talking about, and I think like the longer the bullet is in the rifle barrel, the straighter it would go versus a handgun kind of guessing in this moment, but that's how I think the physics work. Trying to talk about how long someone is in a small group. Can we train them longer? That was the idea. And then we switched <laughs> Then we switched to golfing, like almost seamlessly into like, well, and if you're practicing kind of the wrong stroke and we have our people kind of uh, confessing or unburdening themselves or in God's word or praying and they're unsure, then maybe they're practicing things that would reinforce stuff that may get them frustrated down the road, like my golf game. So we went from guns to golfing, and then I think we did some food and recipes as well. We have all these metaphors kind of mixing together, but each one of them highlighted a certain part of what we were trying to talk about. Like, how long should people be in small groups? What are we trying to train? How much training do they actually need? Can they just pick this up on their own? Can we just throw people into groups and think it's going to go well, or should they get some sort of like direction or shepherding from us like that's that's the conversation but but guns and golfing and recipes is kind of how, how we got there okay all of those highlight something different what I want you to see is all five of these stories are highlighting something a little bit different they're all about the king though he is the main point he is the focal point of how and why we wait he is what we are waiting for Lest we think simply being a good steward is a place of righteousness. As if the goal was just to steward everything well. If you do that, then you've played the game, you've accomplished the task, you've done well. It actually has everything to do with the one who gives you these things. So the parable confronts us with how we understand Jesus. Is he the king? Was he, was he just a teacher? Was he just a prophet? Was he just an ancient figure who, who loved people and, and helped the marginalized and valued women and was with the lowly so we can be inspired by him? Is that, is that all he was? Or is he actually the one who owns everything? Who promised to return? Who has the right to judge the living and the dead? Who, who actually invests in his people the very essence of his kingdom? Is that 
who he is, or, or is he just a teacher? This passage confronts us with how we see the king. And then it confronts us with how we see ourselves. He says in verse 14, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants. And if you see that little uh, footnote there, if you're in the scriptures, it says bond servants, which is another way of saying slaves. Bible's super confrontational to our ego and self-esteem. Rather than saying you can be whatever you want and you are the center of the universe, the scripture says, no, he's the center of the universe and you are his servant. You are his slave. And before we get all up in arms about that, think about what this master did to save his slaves, to, to ransom and redeem, to die in their place, to give his life as a ransom for many. The one who calls us servants and slaves, the one who actually reorients and recalibrates our hearts away from being the king to seeing him as the king is the one who stood in our place, died in such a way to redeem and rescue. So, so it's only offensive to our individual kingdom building projects. It's not offensive if we see this is a king who loves his servants and invites them into his kingdom. But it is incredibly offensive if you are bent on building your own kingdom. If you constantly are trying to get enough commodities to justify yourself through great behavior, right? There's a, a righteous, kind of moral, religious way of doing that. You could do it through experiences, right? There's, there, there's an experiential way of doing that. There's an academic way of doing that. There's a material way of doing that. There's a relational way of doing that. There's ways to actually just say, I'm going to abandon all kinds of authority and law. I'm going to be a law unto myself. There's a way like that to do this, to build your own little kingdom and to think if you just built it strong enough, big enough, you would be rescued and saved. This passage confronts that reality. It calls us to see ourselves as servants, which is probably helpful at this point to say, I know there's a lot of you in the room who are like, man, I haven't been in church in 10 years. First time I'm back, they're talking about money again. The church is always talking about money, trying to get my money. Hey, it's actually worse than that. <laughs> Jesus already owns everything. He doesn't want your money. What this text says is he wants your whole life. You're not paying him off 10% at a time in some sort of installment plan. This is a one-to-one -one ransom deal. He, he doesn't want your money. He wants all of you. And what that means is that all of you is actually, the scriptures say, dead in your trespasses. And what he wants is actually to take your dead life and breathe into it his redemption and forgiveness and grace so you can finally, for the first time, come alive to who you really are and be rightly related to your maker. That's what Jesus is after. I mean, it's probably like too crass that he doesn't care about your money because your money has a grip on your soul and all of that. But he's not after your money. He's after you because, because he's the king who, who owns it all. This text says that we're his servants. We wait for the king as servants. And then it confronts us about how we see our stuff. And oh, we love our stuff. The reason why we have to talk about this in our day and age, where we are in the city with where you are in your situations, your jobs, your economic status and earning potential, is that you're tempted to think that what you have you earned or you deserve or it comes to you because of some goodness inside of you. Because you use it to rank yourself against other people. So, so we know it symbolically represents more than just paying your bills and putting a roof over your head. The kind of roof. And where the roof is located and what the rest of the house is around and what's inside of it. 
who lives there and how they look and where you drive to work from that house. All of that stuff is identity building. But this text says it's from the king. He takes his property. It's all his. We wait rightly for the king by acknowledging everything we have comes from him. The reason why it's not after your money is he already owns it all. There's nothing in the universe that God doesn't stand over and declare mine, including you. Now, you can live your life in rebellion to that reality, which is what this parable talks about. You can say, how dare he? You can say, there's no right to that. He shouldn't do that. I know he's unjust. How dare he make me just to own me? And then that's your posture and your spirit. Then you actually bury what he's given you. You hold on to it and try to protect it in such a way that actually alienates you from him and it deserves the very wrath of God. This text then invites us to consider who the king is, who who we are, and that everything we have, all of our stuff, actually belong to him. Okay, so then just stop for a second and think about this idea of his property. Remember, money is just symbolic, right? This is my fumbled through my schoolhouse rock illustration was to say there's just like a symbolism to it. It's just fibers and paper, but it, it means something else. So what does his property mean? What would it mean to think about the king giving us portions of his property? What, what is his estate? What is his kingdom built on? What's he after? I wonder how you would answer that. Jesus talks about the kingdom of God and the commodities of the kingdom in the Sermon on the Mount. He talks about an upside-down kingdom where everything is different than we thought, where, where peacemakers are the ones who are elevated, where the broken and lowly are the ones who actually find help. He talks about like forgiving your enemies. He talks about investing in, in other people. He talks about, about letting go of, of your grudges. He talks about doing justice and mercy and not commodifying people for your own pleasure. The Sermon on the Mount is full of descriptions of righteousness, of holiness, of goodness, of freedom, of redemption, of salvation. These are the commodities of the king. In Romans 14, verse 17, he says it like this, For the kingdom of God is not a manner of eating and drinking. It's not the stuff, but it's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. He owns everything, every one and zero in your account that feels mythical sometimes because you can't actually touch it. He owns all that. He actually owns you and your story and your background. He owns your abilities, where they came from. He owns the family of origin you grew up in that supported you and fostered certain things inside of you. He owns your IQ. He owns everything you have, the scriptures say, comes from him. He owns all of that. And his kingdom is rooted in things like redemption and salvation and and holiness. We, We try to talk here every week about proclaiming hope. That's a kingdom reality. It's what the king is about. It's what his his kingdom is built on. And then pursuing transformation. That's a kingdom commodity to to think about life change. People going from death to life. People being healed. People being set free from from this suffocating kingdom of self. To actually be liberated in such ways that they can now actually give and offer themselves. And they can sacrifice and they can take risks for the sake of other people because they're not burying and protecting things. So, so pursuing transformation. And then the king came to push back darkness, to, to see the kingdom advance in the world, to, to liberate captives. So last week when we were talking about 
waiting for the king through repentance, not like catch you off guard, but if he came to set captives free, if that's why the king came, if that's what his kingdom is about, then liberating captives is all the essence of what he's trying to do. So you participating in repentance and offering the good news of the kingdom to other people, these are the commodities of the kingdom that he gives to his disciples. So, so surely it would involve how you think about your money and your resources and your talents and your treasure and your time and all that stuff. When we talk about needing to steward, surely it would be involved in that. But those would be applications. The property of the king, what, what he owns, his kingdom is made up of righteousness, and peace, and joy. We would hear fruits of the spirits like love, patience, and goodness, and gentleness. He came actually in a redeeming way. He's not just stacking physical wealth. Again, he has it all. It's fascinating, like, he talks about who has been given little. These five talents, which is five times 15 or 20 years wages, that doesn't sound very little to me, but in relationship or in comparison to all of the universe, that's a pretty small number. When he gives them little, because he owns all of it, a small fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a fraction is nothing to him. So the most wealthy, the most um, accomplished, the most amazing that we would look at in our own life, he says, this is just like a little bit. Because he, ha- he has it all. And his property is made up of these kingdom realities. So money is symbolic. You engaging with the talents, the, the resources he's given you, it's not symbolic in the sense that it doesn't matter and it's all just in your head. It's symbolic in the sense that what you're doing with your stuff is advancing what their stuff is pointing to. So, so your house, your job, your body, your car, your relationship network, all the stuff that you find value and worth and all the stuff that you leverage every day for your identity, those things are pointing to something else. The very same way my $5 bill is pointing to some wealth or some value somewhere else. I'm going to use this $5 bill to get something from it. You're going to take your job, your body, your relationships, your mind, your time, your influence, and you're going to invest those to see righteousness, justice, and mercy. The next parable, actually, we cap these five illustrations. He's ratcheting up every single one of them. He's going to talk about the sheep and the goats. And he's separating out our, our lives based on how we saw the poor and how we sacrificed, right? The kingdom of God is about righteousness. It's about moving towards the oppressed because that's what the king did. That, that is his currency, is redemption. So for followers of Jesus, to wait for his return is to actively invest what he's given them. Even if it's a symbol of a house or a car or a job, or a relational network, or where you live in the city, or your, or your political kind of influence, whatever it is that he's symbolized it with, you use that for the deeper thing, for, for the fuller thing, for the kingdom reality thing. It's just symbolic to press in. So you should be asking regularly, how do I use what I've been given to advance his kingdom? And in all of these relational spheres, with all the stuff that I have, and the liabilities that I have, those belong to him as well. The places where you feel undone, the places where you feel really limited, the places where you suffer, the places where you feel trapped. Even in that space, I'm asking, how do I use my limitations to advance the kingdom? Because all of it is his. The things about your story that you despise, even that you're asking, how do I use this 
to advance the kingdom of God? How do I wait actively by partnering with him in the world around me to use the kingdom commodities to see his kingdom advance? And so, yes, it's about money in as much as it's pointing to something much, much, much deeper. And this would free us in spaces where we're unsure what to do to stop and simply ask, what would be kingdom expressions in this moment? How do I actually partner with God in this moment with my children, with my roommate, with my aging parents, with my adult kids, with people that think my faith is crazy, with a boss who is oppressive, with those I admire and have a crush on, with all those people, how do I actually engage in ways that advance the kingdom? And what you'll find now is things that feel very, very complex. You can begin to start having a footing when you represent the values of the kingdom in those relationships. So let me take like a small risk here. I know it's Pride Month, and I'm sure we have tons of thoughts about that and what that means for us and what it means for you and what you should celebrate, what you should advocate for, what you should resist and stand against. None of us really know exactly what to do in this space as we're hearing things that feel really confusing, and yet there are people that matter. They're made in the image of God. How do we hold all that together? I'm not going to fix that this morning. But I do want to say, what if instead of just tapping out and burying that and saying, I don't know, I'm just going to, I don't even know, I'm just going to tap out and be quiet. What if you thought about the kingdom commodities of dignity, of valuing somebody, of, of speaking truth to somebody, of, of compassion, the kingdom commodity of compassion for somebody who is struggling to kind of reconcile their identity with their body, and that is a form of deep suffering, to have compassion in that space. And even if that person is moved in such a space that they're celebrating that, you can respond in dignity. You can respond with hope. You you can think about transformation in ways that Christ comes in. You can help push back darkness. Even without all the answers, you don't have to have it fully figured out to take small kingdom commodity investments in situations where you feel jammed up. Because our temptation is either to pretend we fully understand it and come in arrogantly or to passively sit back and go, I don't know what to do. What if we invested in the kingdom in spaces where we were confused by matching his commodities in the world around us? I think we wait as we partner with the king in the world around us with the kingdom commodities righteousness and justice and redemption i think jesus is pointing to us way past simply money to spaces where we now ask how do i be about what you're about and not get stuck in this world and the kingdom of self or the kingdom of of this space physically where everything becomes about what i can hold on to because that man who does that we see actually there's judgment The man who just holds on and clings to it out of fear or pride or anger or something, whatever it is at the root that's motivating him, it actually meets judgment. It actually requires a rebuke. It actually is confronted by Jesus. And so we get a chance to think about actively waiting with these kingdom commodities and thinking for a moment about what has God actually given me? And don't limit yourself to dollars and cents or to your time or your talents or your resources. Think about the kingdom commodities of hope, about the promise of transformation, about Christ's desire to push back darkness and step into those places. And then we'll just kind of close with reflection on, I think how you see Jesus determines what you do with that. 
The punchline, again, all these little stories are provocative stories to get us a punchline to kind of shake us a little bit, to, to surprise us some. And it comes in verse 24. He who had received just one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew that you were a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. Hey, I know you came into the world to bring about your kingdom, a kingdom of redemption and restoration and renewal, of healing, of setting captives free. But instead of thinking about you as one who liberates captives and dies in their place to set them free, I see you as wicked. I see you as withholding. I see you as stingy. I see you as demanding. I see you the way we were lied to in the first garden where the evil one tells our first parents, if God made you with limits, it's because he doesn't want you to have what he has. He's holding out information from you. He doesn't want you to know as much as he knows. And we believe that lie. It's so compelling to think any limit I have is because God is somehow stingy. And we won't invest in his kingdom if we see God that way. Which is why Jesus has been kind of showing us what he's like. And of course, the punchline of this whole book comes at the end where he dies in our place. So whatever you think about God, whatever you think about religion, whatever you think about kind of the Bible, whatever you think about Jesus, whatever you think about salvation, know this, at the center of the Christian story is God himself dying in your place. And maybe you have a view of his laws and his demands as too restrictive, and your job as a human is to liberate yourself from that. And that understanding of him will actually shape so much of how you live your life. So the Bible is consistently communicating to you a view of God that's rooted in reality that is one who sacrifices for you. He, he took your place. So far from withholding from you, he gave his very self for you. So much so that at the end of this passage when it says this wicked servant should be sent into utter darkness and into hell, he should actually suffer and pay the penalty for his sin, Jesus will go into that darkness on your behalf. Jesus will go all the way to the spaces to pay for what you justly deserve for the ways you've resisted him and his kingdom. He'll die, absorb the penalty for that so you can be set free. What he gives you in his kingdom is redemption. It's not just for those people, it's, it's for you. This forgiveness and grace and mercy and setting up free of the captives, that's about you. So this one who invites you to wait for him actively, but by saying, come and Recognize everything in the universe is mine. Take my property, my, my kingdom commodities, and invest them in the world around you while you wait for my return. Made all of that possible by his death on the cross. He reconciled you to himself, and he wants to generously give you everything you need, from salvation to walking with you in these really difficult, challenging spaces. He says you're going to suffer. You're, you're going to face persecution. It's going to be chaotic. And he's there in the middle of that with you, wanting you to partner with him to advance the kingdom that he died to set you free to pursue. Would you bow your head with me and close your eyes just for a moment? We end this part of the service with communion because it's a, a reminder, it's a symbolic reminder, but a powerful reminder of this very reality. I just want to give you a second to catch your breath. Think about who God is. Think about who you are. Think about your stuff. And just ask, where am I with Jesus? How do I see him? What we're going to celebrate in a moment through communion is the symbolic reminder that he's a self-giving God who sacrificed in your place 
to set you free. If that's your hope, if you trust him for that, the scriptures say you're a Christian, and I would invite you to come and take communion. We tear a piece of the bread off, then we dip it in the cup, and that's how we remember and celebrate. If you're not there yet, if you're not in a space where you're ready to believe, if you're still wondering, is, is he good? Is he sufficient? Is, is your kingdom going to be enough for you after all? I'm so thankful you're here. I just invite you to sit in your seat and pray. There's some prayers in the back of your bulletin that would give you examples of how to ask for faith and how to dialogue with him. But would you take whatever you're feeling now, resistance, doubt, struggle, skepticism, and bring that to him? Don't, don't come take communion, but, but bring that to him. And if you remember last week, we started having a time of prayer. So outside the room to the right by those couches, there's folks who are ready to pray for you. They love to pray for you for anything. You could pray uh, for things you're struggling with, things that are going well, places where you have need, where you just want to be known. They'd love to answer questions about what it means to follow Jesus. So you can take communion, you can sit where you are and pray, and you can also go for prayer in the back of the room. But I want to invite you to respond now to what the king has said. Let me pray, and then we'll take communion and pray together. Jesus, thank you for what you've done, who you are, what your kingdom is about. I'm struck by the profound nature that you entrusted to your servants your very kingdom property and commodities. Help us now receive them for ourselves so we can share them with others. Fill this room with faith, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, do what you need to do.